The Bible reading this morning comes from Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When jo Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I have not made as many trips uh, to Bunnings in the last couple of weeks as I ever have in my whole life. And that's because as I've spent time in isolation at home over the last couple of weeks, uh, more and more things I see or my wife tells me about need fixing and things get broken. Maybe the more time I spend at home, more things are getting broken. Uh, my little son, Leif, who's nine months old, is helping me. He recently tore a... Uh, page in his book and mum was there quickly with a piece of sticky tape. But there are some things at home that can't be fixed, aren't there? You drop a piece of glass on the floor, a piece of pottery, and it shatters into a thousand pieces. And you look at it and it seems impossible to fix. I uh, have been setting up an uh, office at home and I ordered online a little cabinet uh, to go under my desk, a little filing cabinet. And I don't know whether it was damaged on the way, whether it was dropped or improperly packed, but when it turned up at home, it had a bung wheel. And contrary to what I look like, I know I look like somebody who can handle their own in the shed, I got my toolbox out and I could not fix it. And so needless to say, it's packed up at the front door, ready to be sent back tomorrow. Uh, there are some things in life that you just can't fix. And I wonder actually whether that's how we feel about our own lives sometimes as well. They feel like they're irreparable, irredeemable, unfixable, broken. Um, this passage 
speaks to that. You know, maybe you're someone who feels like because of something that's been done to you, you feel like your life is broken, irreparable, irredeemable. Maybe somebody's hurt you. And on the other hand, you know, I'm sure all of us, if we closed our eyes, thought about it for a moment, we know there are times where we hurt others and it makes us feel ashamed. It makes us feel broken. Uh, like, you know, that's just us and there's, there's nothing that can change that. This passage speaks directly into that moment about what's possible for the irredeemable, those who feel broken, those who feel uh, irreparable, unfixable. This passage speaks into that, this story about Jacob's ladder is actually about God and what he can do for those people. And the point is this, and this is the big idea of the whole Christian story, is that God gives himself and he gives his promises to the broken, to those who are undeserving, those who are irredeemable. God gives himself and his promises to them. That's the great truth. Uh, We're in a series called Coming to Faith, and I want us to look at this passage because it tells us something about trusting in the God of the Bible that we've been talking about all morning. The first thing to notice in this passage uh, is that it's about disclosure. It's about God wanting to be known. It's about him coming to Jacob. The first thing that probably strikes you uh, in this passage is Jacob's dream. Jacob has this amazing dream. It's a crazy dream. The stairway, the angels coming up and down, and and God's right there. And one way to think about this is like a little lift the flap book. Obviously, I've been doing lots of them at home. You know, we've got the one about spot needing to be found, or the one about the very hungry caterpillar. But we've also, uh, one that I'm really interested in getting on, uh, getting for life later in life, is one of those ones where you lift the flap and you see the inside of like a ship, or an office building, or a submarine, and you see the workings, what's going on inside. And this moment is like that. It's like a a flap is being lifted on God, who he is, and his purposes in the world. And we, with Jacob, get to see right into this other reality. And what's he see? He sees a staircase. Staircases, of course, are metaphors, both for Jacob back then and also for us today. You know, you can think of a rock song, I'm sure, in the 20th century. It talks about a stairway to heaven. It's an image, a metaphor for access to God, for access to heaven. And God is saying to Jacob, you have access to me. And the angels coming up and down, angels are God's messengers. And so this is about God's activity in Jacob's life. God is saying, I know where you are. I know what's going on for you. But you can be assured heaven is, be- heaven is very busy in your life. I'm at work in your life. But probably the most striking thing in this dream is where God is. Did you notice? It says that God is above it, above the ladder, or uh, it might have a little note in your Bible and it says actually beside him. God is beside Jacob. The idea, whatever it is, is actually one of intimacy. It's that God is right there with Jacob. It's, it, it's as if he's standing over Jacob in his dream, looking down at him, trying to say, I'm right here, mate. I'm right here. I'm with you. And this story is right at the beginning of the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. And right from the get-go, we're seeing that God's intention is to dwell on earth with us, to be with his people, to be right there with him. And God is saying, I'm with you. 
And I want to be known. That's the beauty of this passage. God's saying, I want to be known. And he's disclosing himself so transparently, that flap's being lifted up, so openly, so honestly. Why would he do that? Well, we all know something about relationships. And that is, the more open a relationship is, the more open someone is to us, the more honest, the more authentic, the more real they are to us, the better we can get to know them and the better we can trust them, the deeper our relationship can go, the more we can trust them, the more that relationship can be. And God wants to be known by us and the reason he becomes so transparent like this is because he, he wants us to know he wants a relationship with us that's personal, that's deep. How does God most truly reveal himself? Well, of course, the story goes on. And in the New Testament, actually in the first chapter of John's story of Jesus' life, Jesus meets an Israelite. Jacob's name becomes Israel. And so you kind of see where this moment's going. And he has this moment with Nathaniel, the Israelite, And Jesus says to him, and actually to all the disciples in the crowd around him, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, heaven will be open to you and you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on him himself. Jesus is saying, I'm that stairway. How do you have access to God? How do you have God's presence in your life? How do you know God? How does God reveal himself to us? Through Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews Uh, will say, you know, in the past, God spoke to us in different ways at different times, but now he's spoken to us in his son, in Jesus. And so God wants to be known. And I don't know about you, but uh, maybe you feel like God is distant to you, wherever you are right now. Maybe you feel like God is distant. Let me assure you, if God feels distant to you, it's not because God is distant. It's not because God is far away. That's the good news of Christianity, that God wants to be near to us, that he actually came in his son. He became human, that we as humans might know him. The second thing that we, is startling about this passage is that God is truly gracious. God is revealed as someone who doesn't just want to be known, but someone who treats us better than we deserve. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context. Jacob Uh, is a second-born son in his family. He actually doesn't have the love of his father. It says, brutally, it says that Isaac loved Esau. The implication is that he didn't love his son. And so Isaac doesn't have his father's love, and he's fleeing in this moment. Why is he asleep on a rock in the wilderness? He's fleeing uh, because his brother wants to take his life, and he has no family, and he has no friends for protection. And in fact, I love how this passage opens by saying the sun is setting. It's as if the sun is setting on his life. He has no future. And it's at that moment that God speaks to him and gives him these amazing promises. God says to him, the land that you're lying on, I'm going to give you. It'll be yours. And he says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And he says, through you, the whole world will be blessed. And he says, I will be with you and I'll watch over you. There's amazing promises. And we think, oh, that's so lovely. Until we remember who Jacob is. Jacob's no saint. Jacob's a scoundrel. He's the last person on earth who deserves this. Jacob's name means deceiver. 
And uh, he well and truly lives up to that name. You might remember of him uh, the moment where he deceives his brother for his birthright. He's the younger son, like I said, so he's not entitled to the birthright, the privileges and all that comes with that. And one day his, his brother, who's a, a, a hunter, comes in starving and Jacob's got some soup and uh, Jacob decides he'll give his brother some soup if on the condition that his brother gives him his birthright. His brother, of course, is starving to death and he takes the soup, you know, and we're left thinking some kind of brother this is, steals his brother's birthright. On the other hand, a couple of years later, he then deceives his own father. His father's elderly and he's actually going blind and Jacob decides this could be a good moment to steal his brother's, not just his birthright, but his blessing, his inheritance, to take his brother's inheritance. And so he goes into his brother, uh, his, he goes into his father and he dresses up like Esau. Esau was a hairy man, so he puts on some goat skins. He wanted to smell like Esau, so he puts on some of Esau's clothes. And he goes in there and he tricks his dad into giving him his brother's inheritance. He's a scoundrel. He has done nothing up until this point. There is no evidence in the book up until this point that Jacob's a man worthy of anything. He's not morally good. He's not relationally good. He has spent his whole life deceiving and lying and tricking his family. And it's at that moment that God gives Jacob these blessings, these promises. I don't know whether you've uh, come up with any new hobbies while uh, you've been in isolation. Mine has been reading some novels. And uh, I'm reaching at the moment for new novels. And I've been going through my grandfather's collection. And I just happened to read a Jeffrey Archer novel recently. It was a real page turner. But there was a, a, uh, a, a person in there, a character, who was in a kind of a similar position. He was the son, the rightful son of this earl or lord uh, in the UK and had inherited the family title and all that therein. And, but he's, he's this rat of a man, you know. He's a terrible man that's just destroyed life after life after life. His name's Lord Barrington. Maybe you've read it, Hugo Barrington. And, uh, and he has destroyed his first marriage. He's got a fiancé. He's destroyed her life by stealing all, his, all her money to keep up the kind of lifestyle that he wants. He's uh, sold his mother's jewellery so that he can pay off some debts. He ends up selling the family estate and trying to flee to America. And it's right towards the end of the book, and the police finally catch up with him. He's in prison. He's uh, being accused of you know, many things, fraud and deceit. And uh, miraculously, in the middle of the night, he gets released from prison. Somebody bails him out. And then the next day, his business that he's run into the ground, his, his family empire, this business, uh, receives a government grant, a government tender for a million dollars a month. And the reader's there just going, what? No, not this close to the end. Surely he's not the guy who deserves this. He deserves something else. And that is exactly the feeling we should be having with Jacob at this point. He doesn't deserve this. And, and yet he gets all of this blessing. Jacob receives all this blessing. And we're left kind of feeling, you know, God is obviously loving to the undeserving. He's good, he's kind, he's gracious, but he can't be just as well. 
you know, this, it'd be wrong for him to give this blessing. This story actually reminds me of the prodigal son in the New Testament, the story Jesus tells, where the younger son takes his inheritance, spoils it, and realizes he has to come back. And he comes back to the father. The father embraces him, puts on a party for him. And the older brother's in the room watching, and he realizes this is incredibly unjust because actually the son receiving the fattened calf and this, all this expense paid for this party is actually eating into his own inheritance. And, and the elder son looks on in disgust. Uh, the truth about our world and our story, because this story is about Jacob, it's about Israel, it's about all of God's people, it's about how God deals with us, the irredeemable, the unworthy. The truth for us, actually, is that we have a better older son. We've got an older son who willingly gives up, sacrifices his own inheritance. He gives up everything he has so that the younger son can be brought home. See, the Christian faith is not for perfect people. The Christian faith is for scoundrels like you and me who have done wrong, who have been deceived and who deserve nothing less than punishment. And yet we have this older brother who's willing to accept us and to bring us back into the family. Christian faith is, is utterly undeserved. What God's blessings are utterly undeserved, but completely paid for in Christ the Son. Well, the third thing to notice in this passage is Jacob's response to God. Did you notice his response at the end there? He has a mental response where he realizes, actually, I didn't know everything about the world that I thought I knew. He has a physical response and an emotional response. His emotional response is that he's in awe of God and what he's done. And then the physical response is setting up the pillar, uh, a memorial. He honours this experience that he's had with God. But what's most noticeable there is his vow, his promise that he makes at the end. And, and scholars are divided about this promise uh, because on the one hand, Jacob the simplicity of his promise, he just purely he asks God for clothing, he asks God for um, simple things, God to watch over him, to protect him, and, and we also see him offer a tenth of everything that he has. And so commentators point to that and they go, see, Jake, Jacob has faith, he has a strong faith, he's ch a changed man. On the other hand, scholars look at it and they go, yet the promise is conditional, Jacob says, if, God, you do all these things for me, then I'll give you my life, etc., etc. And it's very conditional. It's like Jacob's the same guy. He's still cutting a bargain. He's still trying to get what he can for himself out of this. I think the truth about this passage is that both are true. On the one hand, yes, Jacob has changed, but it's still going to take many years for him to be transformed into the person God wants him to to be. It's going to take many years. And actually, we get to the end of life, Jacob's life and we see that uh, he becomes a man of integrity, a man of truthfulness in his speech and in his actions. Uh, it takes a long time. So why, but, but, and he is transformed. But why do we still have these stories of Jacob where he's this deceiver and he spends his life deceiving and being deceived? Why do we have these stories? I think it's because the truth is, is that it's the stories of a, re a brokenness redeemed 
that make God's love so good. It's a story of brokenness redeemed that make us who we are, that bring about our true transformation. There's, you might be aware of it, there's a Japanese art form called kintsugi, where broken pieces of pottery are restored using a lacquer that's infused with gold. And it's said that collectors actually were so enamoured with the new artwork when it came out that they would deliberately break pots, expensive pots, so that they could receive this gold treatment, that they could have seams of gold all through them. That's the Christian story. That's the Christian narrative. That's how God works in our lives. He takes irredeemable things, broken things, and he puts our lives back together and turns them into more valuable than they were to begin with. And that's true for us and those who come to faith, those who trust God. So why can, why can you trust that? How can you trust that story? How do you know that's going to be true for you? Well, the answer is actually it was true of Jesus' own life. After he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples, look at my hands, look at my feet. Why? Because there were scars there. Not because the scars weren't there, but because those scars were now seams of gold. They had turned him into the king in all his beauty. His beauty was showing through those scars. Because God sent the whole one, the perfect one, the unbroken one into our world to take on all of our trauma, all of our trouble, all of our transgression, and to be broken so that the broken might become whole again, so that the broken might be redeemed. I'm going to pray for us. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you desire to be known by us. Lord, more than that, you desire uh, to give us more than we deserve. You deal graciously with us. And Lord, we thank you that you're transforming us into the people you desire us to be. Father, we thank you for your good and undeserved gift of Jesus Christ and that he makes us whole. He redeems the broken. Amen. Amen.